0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, The Best of Risk, number 26, you'll hear Danny Faith Leonard. She just saw
1: a penis for the first time, and she wouldn't shut the fuck up about it.
0: (laughs) That and more. But before that, folks, you know, a while back we put out a call for therapists who have a special interest in storytelling and how stories are relevant to the work that people do to support mental health. So, of course, there were a lot of narrative therapists, but also other sorts of uh, mental health coaches, counselors, researchers, social workers who love storytelling. There's an entirely separate podcast series that we've been thinking about creating, but there's also a possibility of incorporating some of this therapy and storytelling content into risk. And a lot of wonderful therapists did reach out to us and say they'd be interested in brainstorming with us and perhaps even recording conversations for potential podcast content with us. Well, right now, there are two specific kinds of therapists that I'm especially interested in hearing more from people of color who are therapists. I feel that people of color, you know, are able to share about experiences or perceptions that are especially important to hear about. And the other group I'm intrigued to hear from are hypnotherapists or therapists who do a lot of work with guided meditation. So once again, I'm putting out this call if you're a therapist who has a particular interest in storytelling, but especially if you're a person of color or a hypnotherapist who fits that description, reach out to me at at kevinatrisk-show.com and let's explore some ideas. Again, that's kevinatrisk-show.com.
2: We'll be right back. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today.
0: Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Sparks behind me now. And this is the best of Risk number 26. I want to say thank you so much to all the fans who went and voted on their favorite stories from the past six months. Which is largely how the stories on this week's episode and the best of risk number 25 from a couple of weeks ago were chosen. If you go to risk best of risk, you'll find all 26 of these best of episodes. And we highly encourage you to share them with folks who might be new to the podcast, as they are the perfect introduction to the podcast. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Danny Faith Leonard, the creator of the live comedy show Adult Sex Ed. But first, a story from actor Ethan Suplee, who has a popular podcast called American Glutton. So here is Ethan now with a story we call Heroin Drought.
3: In the late 90s, I was at the height of my movie career. I'd already worked with Denzel Washington twice at this point. I'd been in blow with Johnny Depp, and I'm fairly sure it was my co-starring layup that led to Ed Norton's Best Actor nomination for American History X. I love acting. Actors get to enter into a world of total make-believe, and there's actually a whole crew that's constantly creating this fantasy around them, Part of this fantasy is the stripping away of all the banal, normal things that the average person has to think about, like food and clothes, but even down to what to say and where to stand, and on the microcosm, sometimes even where to look, and they'll put a little X in tape so you know exactly where your eyes should go. And as you grow in stature as an actor, they will kind of develop a whole team that's there to cater to this fantasy to keep the fantasy going and one of the other things that comes with growing as an actor and importance of an actor is your trailer you start out in a honey wagon this is a trailer that's been kind of segmented into six compartments and they sardine you into these compartments and then when you kind of grow out of that and you've got some work under your belt you get a triple banger this is one whole trailer cut into three rooms the journeyman actor you know who's been doing it for a while will get a double banger that's a whole trailer that's cut in half but you know you've really made it as an actor when you've got your own trailer so here i am doing a movie with mick jackson who directed the bodyguard and la story And I've got my own trailer. Check me out. But I couldn't even use the bathroom in my own trailer because I was 500 pounds. I had kind of made my bones as an actor being the big guy playing the sometimes lovable, sometimes disgusting, overweight, buffoonish friend. And that was fine. You know, if we go all the way back to my childhood from the age of five, my parents had been restricting food and I got very, very good at sneaking it, at eating on my own, at cramming as much into me as I possibly could. And my weight was out of hand for sure. But when I became an actor, I mean, on a movie set, the first thing that happens is you you have a catering crew making you breakfast when you show up in the morning and then there's a past meal midway between breakfast and lunch and then there's a catered lunch and then midway between lunch and the end of the day there's a catered second meal and that's all before they serve you dinner if you work a 12-hour day when i got some money and found myself spending a lot of times on movie sets my weight exploded and there was a lot of shame associated with eating for me so i would eat by myself in my trailer Now you might think it's kind of odd for a person with shame to be an actor, but being an actor was a shield. It was a buffer from reality. I could, I could imagine that people were looking at that guy from that thing and not necessarily seeing the disfigurement that I'd caused myself. This was my camouflage. This was my invisibility cloak. Don't look at me, look at that person you saw in that one movie. That was my rationalization. Back to my single trailer. It didn't really matter that at 500 pounds, I couldn't fit in the tiny little cubicle bathroom at the end of my trailer, because I was also a junkie. 22 years old, 500 pounds heroin addict I had uh, been given some Vicodin a few years before and I loved it this drug added another separation from me in reality and when the Vicodin ran out I had to buy Percocet on the street and when that ran out I eventually found heroin and heroin was the magic that made me not care about other people looking at me Well, one of the other things associated with heroin use is constipation. So I rarely shit, but I kept eating. So I never had to worry about using the tiny little cubicle bathroom in my trailer. Well, about a month into this movie, and I'd been planning my heroin really well. I would buy it over the weekend, do it throughout the week, and then re-up on the weekend and I got to a Thursday and I ran out and I called my guy and said I gotta come by after work and get some more and he said no no I'm out I don't have anything and this is my guy Javier this is the guy I've been going to for a year now And he's out, and this is crazy. So I call this other guy, The Pirate. He's the overpriced delivery guy, and we called him The Pirate because he had a gigantic beer, wore scarves over his head, and had a very raspy voice from years of drug use. The Pirate was out too. So I'm confronted with the very pedestrian having to go downtown to cop drugs. And I get in my car after work, and I'm starting to feel the first inklings of withdrawal. My skin is crawling. My stomach doesn't feel right. I'm just starting to feel generally more and more in touch with reality. And this would present itself in stuff like when I'm high on dope, I got my windows down and my music up and I'm happy for everybody to see me jamming out, you know, to Danzig or something like that. But now... I want this cloak of anonymity. And so I'm windows up, music off. I'm never even gonna stop next to another car. I just slow way down when there's a red light because I don't want a moment of getting caught in the gaze of another person. So I make my way to Bonnie Brand Six, which in the 90s were the heroin corners, and, and they're out. And I'm like, fuck. I got to go to MacArthur Park. I got to get out of my car. I got to walk around. MacArthur Park is like Night of the Living Dead. Those junkies don't eat. And if they do, it's like out of trash cans. And and I'm lumbering through the park, dripping sweat. I mean, just to walk from my car is like a, a, a real cardiovascular effort and I'm wandering through the park looking for drugs and I so obviously don't belong there at my size and I'm, I'm having trouble breathing and I can't even stop and rest on a park bench for fear that I'll break it and wind up on my back to be, you know, devoured by the zombies. I get to the bridge in the park where the drugs are sold and there's no heroin there either. So I'm back in my car back to the streets back to not stopping at red lights so people don't see me and I go down to Skid Row and there's no heroin there either and I go to the alley off of Main Street and there's no heroin there either and I am fully withdrawing at this point and the night has passed by and soon I'm gonna have to go back to work and I call Javier again and I say buddy I'm hurting and I need something to get through the day and he says listen I have something but it's Garbage, And I wouldn't sell it to you. But if you want it, you can come over and get it. And I am racing to his house. And I get it. And I get back in my car. And everything is telling me just do the heroin now. But I'm thinking like, no, I got to play this smart. I got to get to work. And whatever effect this is going to have on me, I want it to last throughout as much of the day as it possibly can. So I'm I'm going back to work now with the little package of magic hopefully in my pocket and and i'm really sick at this point and i pull up at work and the very chipper pa says she's gonna walk me to my trailer and i get out and everything just seems like comedically far apart she asked me if i want breakfast and i i can't think about food right now so i say no but i'm clocking that the catering truck seems like it's a mile away and the other cash trailers seem like they're miles away and and wardrobe is very far and and the crew bathroom trailer is across the parking lot and I'm pouring sweat but freezing. My skin hurts. My stomach, there's something terrible happening in my stomach and I get into my trailer and I get changed and you got to understand that At 500 pounds, it's like literally carrying another very large man on my back. So getting changed is utterly exhausting. But I do it. And I sit down. And I get my royal tinfoil out of the cupboard that I keep it in. And I make a tinfoil straw around a pen. And I make a little tinfoil plate. And I put my black tar heroin on it. And I start to smoke it. And I smoke every last bit of this tar heroin. And nothing has eased and at this point i skyrocket out of my chair and i want you to understand that i don't move very fast at 500 pounds but this is fast this is like hussein bolt fast up and onto the balls of my feet and i am clenching my asshole closed because all of that compact poop all of that constipation has turned to utter liquid and i suddenly realized that I'm never going to make it all the way across the parking lot to the crew bathroom that has normal sized toilets in it. And I'm looking down the length of my trailer at this tiny little cubby hole of a bathroom. And I'm realizing that I'm going to have to christen this sucker. And I start to hobble towards the bathroom. I am trying to stand as tall and as straight as possible. And I am clenching my asshole as tight as I possibly can because there is a pressure there that is saying we are coming out one way or the other and I'm moving down my trailer and I get to the door and I have to turn to my side to get in and my back and my stomach are rubbing on either side of the door frame and I feel the, the the cheeks of my butt gently push past the door frame, which causes a little bit of separation but i suck it back in and i'm into the bathroom and i'm in the bathroom and i'm thinking i i I can't do this with the door open i've got to close the door though there's nobody else in the trailer the whole thing is mine but i feel that what i'm going to do is going to be so awful that i need the door shut so I lean forward a little bit and there's separation, and I gotta clench again. And I'm holding it in as tightly as I possibly can. But as I turn, my stomach rubs against the sink and ch- turns on the water. So now there's water on my shirt, and I'm leaning forward and I get the door closed. And now I'm confronted with the fact that there is no room to bend over to get my pants down. So I. Unbuckle them as quickly as possible and do a shimmy all while standing straight on the balls of my feet, all while clenching my fucking asshole closed, keeping that pressure at bay. And I get my pants down around my ankle and I'm just thinking, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'm going to have to thrust backwards. The area that the toilet's in is about a a foot and a half wide and it sits between the sink and the wall. I'm at least three and a half feet wide and I'm thinking maybe if I throw myself back with enough force I will break the sink off of where it's mounted to the wall and the floor and push my way in and I throw myself back and I get about an inch and a half down and two inches back and I'm just... there's an explosion and I'm stuck and I have shit flying out of me all over the wall, all over the toilet, down my legs, down my pants. And when it stops, I have a moment where I'm thinking, God, maybe now, maybe now I could have enough. I have enough time and enough wherewithal to get across to the crew trailer with the real toilets. But I look down and there's shit all over my pants. And I let it go. I'm in a three-quarter squat. And I'm fucking shitting down my legs. And I start to cry. And then there's a knock at the door. And the very chipper PA says. We're ready for you on set. And, uh. And I don't know what to do. I have no separation from reality at this point. I don't even have my wardrobe. I don't have my character. I don't have my heroin. I am just a 500 pound man stuck in a bathroom, shitting on himself. And I I finally say to her, I had an accident and I need wardrobe and a minute later there's a knock at the door and the door opens and the door closes and I hear a gasp at what I imagine is from the smell and then I hear this wardrobe gal walk down the length of the trailer and I kind of pull my shirt down and hold it down with one hand and open the door and i just say can you help me and she says yeah and she leaves and comes back with paper towels and cloth towels and damp towels and plastic bags and cleaning solvents and and new clothes and I get to rebuild that one layer that separates me from reality. And I get as clean as I possibly can get. And I put as much as I can in the plastic bag. And then I close that bathroom door and, and now it doesn't exist. So I'm alone again in my trailer. And I, I tell that chipper PA that I've hurt myself and I need a doctor. And the doctor comes and there's a lovely dance that as a drug addict you learn to do with the doctor where you say words like sciatic nerve and pain threshold and, and eventually I'm given a prescription for Percocet the whole time, the smell in the trailer is not acknowledged. And then my prescription is filled and I've got my pills and I eat my pills and I sit there and slowly reality washes away from me and I'm once again numb and I make my way to set where I'm shooting a dancing scene with Rosario Dawson. I would love to tell you that that was my rock bottom but it wasn't. It was uh, at least another year before I got sober, and even that was trial and error. Then it was a couple of years before I confronted my weight, but I have traded some bad addictions for good. I found bicycle riding and lifting weights. I've lost hundreds of pounds and I'm about to be a grandfather, and as far as my career goes, any worry that I had about being the jovial fat guy, I just did a movie playing a jacked ex-Navy SEAL, and I was relegated back down to the half-banger, but Channing Tatum was in the other half, so it wasn't so bad, and I took a healthy shit in that trailer every day.
1: ever had a story that you've been telling yourself for a really long time, and then something happens and that story is completely turned on its head. I think we all have these stories from our past and these things that we've been holding on to. And sometimes when you have a lot of time to think about it, it completely changes. And in the last couple of years, we've all had a lot of time to reflect. So I'm going to tell a story that's like that for me, where After a lot of reflection, I am finally able to see the other person's perspective. And this story begins when I was just 13 years old. I grew up in a fairly conservative town. It was kind of like the town from the movie Footloose was dropped into Long Island and then they added some weird backyard wrestling. It was only 40 minutes outside of Manhattan, and for some reason I was the only Jew. I don't even know how that's possible, but it was possible because it's true. So as a child, my place in the social hierarchy of this town was not great. I had a ton of food allergies before that was like a popular thing. So I was like very, very sickly. I had a problem with one of my legs and I had to wear a brace. I wore glasses, I had braces, and then to make things completely unbearable, there was something so wrong with my vision that sometimes I had to wear an eye patch. Yes, so being an eye patch girl, not fun. Uh, Basically, I was this little Jewish pirate in a closed-minded town, is what I'm telling you. And so, like so many kids, School held a lot of value for me because things were really stressful at home. So when I was about 13 years old, my father was on the verge of a nervous breakdown that sometimes left him almost comatose and at other times completely rageful. So really, when I went to school, it was like my escape. And I so desperately wanted to fit in, but it just didn't seem to be possible because the other kids were taking classes to prepare for their communion and listening to Tool. And I was preparing for my bat mitzvah and writing spec scripts for Seinfeld. And they were really good, really, really good. But luckily by the time I reached middle school, at least physically, I was starting to come into my own. I um, sprouted tits, as you do, got rid of the eye patch, got rid of the glasses, I got some contacts, and I was starting to at least fit in a little bit more. And I really found my key for fitting in. So at school, because this was a conservative town, we had abstinence-only sex ed. And basically, we learned about the diseases and all of the terrible things that would happen to you when you had sex, and we spent most of the semester watching Philadelphia to learn that if you have sex, you will get AIDS, and if you get really skinny in Hollywood, you will win prizes. (laughs) That was my takeaway. And it was taught by our gym teacher inside the wrestling gym, which was covered with these really sticky mats that probably carried scabies. And uh, he was a really lovely man. He had lost part of his leg in a motorcycle accident. So the kids called him half-calf because (laughs) kids really suck. And uh, for me, growing up at home... My sex experience was very, very different. My mom was actually a sex ed teacher for a while, not mine, thankfully, but my house was so open. So I had all of this information and it was information that I could use to my advantage. And in middle school, all of the information that girls knew about sex, we would share with each other during lunch break. And if the weather was nice, we were allowed to eat outside and we would take over this little alcove that was outside of the gym. And in our little alcove, the teachers couldn't hear us. And I would give these impromptu sex ed lessons in a hushed voice to make sure that no one would hear. If you wanted to know about birth control, I would tell you all about its history, about how the ancient Egyptians actually used crocodile dung mixed with honey and shoved it up there. And it was alkaline, so it worked as a spermicide. And now you can buy birth control from your pharmacist. And if you wanted to know about blowjobs, I really didn't know how to give one, but I would try to tell you how. And so my lessons weren't exactly accurate, but I reveled in the fact that I had more information than them and that half-calf was on the other side of the door. And I was doing his job and I was doing it really well. But most importantly, I was becoming popular. And I did hit a little roadblock. So all of the girls were really competitive. And we were very competitive about our firsts, about our first kiss, our first boyfriend, the first time your science teacher hits on you. And I had this friend, Kathy, and she just saw a penis for the first time. And she wouldn't shut the fuck up about it. (laughs) So I felt like I needed to catch up to her. I can't get left behind. This is the only social capital that I have. (laughs) I need to see a penis too. And I was really, really lucky because I was about to have one in close proximity. So given the climate of this town and like the general lack of culture, our school thought that we should do an exchange program with a town that was right outside of Stockholm, Sweden. And I was so excited that my parents let me participate. We didn't have an extra bed. We only had one full bathroom for all of us. But I found out that there was going to be a boy staying in my house. A couple of weeks later, we picked Frederick up from the airport and... To a 13 year old girl, this boy who was the same age as me was an Adonis, six foot three, 100 pounds. His body is like a foot across from side to side. And I thought he was phenomenal. He had a blonde boy band, mushroom haircut. He and his friends all wore neon windbreakers like modern day fuckboys in Bushwick. It was amazing. <laughs> And the rest of the Swedes were really, really friendly. But Frederick didn't say a word. He was like a Viking mute. <laughs> so we put on Ace of Base. And I, I swear he smiled. And so this first week that he was visiting, we did everything possible to get this kid to be comfortable. My mom made him Meatballs. Maybe this was misguided, but we took him to Ikea. We had him read out the names of all of the furniture. (laughs) Welcome to America. And, uh, you know, we played ABBA. We really, really tried. But if you've ever bought furniture from Ikea, you know how there's always a piece missing? That was the perfect metaphor for Frederick. There was just a piece missing. But the one thing that he was very comfortable with, and this was really, really great for me, was nudity. You know, it's very obvious to us now that Europeans are way more comfortable with their bodies or have traditionally been than Americans have been, and especially Scandinavians. So he stayed in this house. And every time he took a shower, which was like maybe once a week, he, uh, he showered with the door, cracked open a little bit. and. I knew that that was my opportunity, but I was so shy. I couldn't let myself take a look. And besides, he was becoming, over time, a really important part of my life. I took my tall, unfriendly friend with me everywhere that I went. He hung out with my friends. He went to family parties. He tore it up with the grandmas at my cousin's bar mitzvah. And it was really nice to have an extra man around the house, especially one who was like a foot taller than my dad. There was no fighting. It was amazing. He could reach the top shelf. And we were like flirty, awkward. So for me, it was like a dream. But his trip eventually was going to come to an end. And a few weeks had passed and I found out that Kathy was still out there bragging about her peen show. And I decided that it was time for me to become a woman and it was time for me to finally see a dick. So the next time he took a shower, I made sure that my parents weren't around and I lingered outside the door. And I finally saw it. Uncircumcised, flaccid, <laughs> hot pink, probably from the steam of the shower. He shook himself off to dry, smacked himself in both ass cheeks because they're like three inches apart, and there it was. But I lingered outside the door too long, and when he came out of the bathroom, very, very suddenly, my hand caught his penis. And here I was just wanting to see a penis for the first time, and I was losing my hand virginity. (laughs) He looked bewildered, maybe a little excited, and I was mortified. I ran into my room, and he had a few more weeks in the US, and for that time, he suddenly was animated, talking a ton, speaking perfect English, and I was the mute. And so eventually, he left, he went home, And I went back to the alcove to tell my slightly exaggerated tale of the time that I shook hands with someone's penis. (laughs) The girls were wide-eyed. They were so excited to hear my story, except for Kathy, of course. She had a lot of questions. Did it make a smack or a thwack? (laughs) And I was like, I don't know, Kathy, if A hand slaps a penis in the woods and no one else is there to hear it. Does it even make a sound? And for this one brief period of time, I was the most popular girl in eighth grade. Thank you so much.
2: All
6: that she wants is to see a penis. She's
1: gone tomorrow, but All that she wants is to see a wiener yeah. So I'm growing up in Sweden with free healthcare and a solid respect for science and my school sets up an exchange program to figure out how the other half lives I get to the airport and I see Danny She's like a 13 year old's dream Big swollen tits And a tan line from an eye patch I get into her mom's Honda Odyssey And I'm so hard They put on Ace of Base And these ignorant people take me to Ikea They make me read out the names of the furniture Billy Bookcase I'm so fucking mad And I should be But I just keep thinking this one thing By the end of this trip This girl's gonna see my dick so every week or so I take a shower with the door cracked open, thinking that she's going to be waiting for me. And then finally, the day arrives. I'm taking a shower, I look outside the door and I see her raccoon eye. So I get out of the shower, I look down at myself, my dick's hot pink. I shake it off from side to side, I smack both of my ass cheeks. They're about three inches apart, it's not hard. I think about doing a pinwheel and then I'm like, no, no, too far. So then I see that little mouse face outside the door, and I decide, All right, Freddy, it's time to fuck this shit up. And I leap outside the door, and I high-five her with my penis. I go back to Sweden a few weeks later as a hero.
0: This is Risk. Before the break we heard a story called Heroin Drought by Ethan Suplee and that was followed by Danny Faith Leonard you can find at Danny F. Leonard on Instagram and who as you've heard did at long last see the peen. Now we're about to hear three more of our favorite stories from the past six months or so but from just two different storytellers. In a little bit, we'll hear from Molly McCloy, who you can find at mollymccloy.com. But before and after that, we'll be hearing two shorter stories from our friend Daniele Bellelli, who you know from two podcasts you really shouldn't miss out on, The Drunken Taoist Podcast and History on Fire. So it'll be a Bolelli sandwich with a whole lot of Molly in the middle. So here's Daniele now with a story we call In Her Presence.
5: So this was about 2011, maybe 2012. My wife had recently died from a brain tumor. My daughter was about a year and a half old, uh, two years if it was 2012 by then. Life was not particularly fun, to put it mildly. Not only there was grief involved, but there was also a bunch of other stuff. The house we lived in, we had a mortgage that was predicated on two incomes. That wasn't going to happen anymore. This was back during the loan crisis where everybody was asking for loan modifications. So when I asked the banks, saying, hey, can I get a little help here on the interest rates because uh, things have changed for me, I got back two letters in the same day, one telling me that they couldn't give me a loan modification because I made too much money. So clearly I didn't need it. And the other letter telling me that I I wouldn't get a loan modification because I was making too little money. So. We are going to lose the house. My wife had died. The teaching job that I've been looking to get on a more permanent basis for the previous 10 years, and I was told I was pretty much a shoe in for it, it became clear that things had changed and I was never going to get it. So my career is taking a nosedive. My baby needs me 24-7, understandably so, and I'm not in the greatest frame of mind I've ever been. I'm stressed beyond belief. I'm grieving without time to grieve. I'm just not in a good time in my life. So, one of the things I badly needed at the time, like I needed it like I needed oxygen, was to catch a break for a few minutes, an hour. And the only time when that would happen was when my daughter would take a nap. So, that was my not even a moment of sanity because it's not that I could do something for myself at that time it was just a moment where I could try to catch up on the million things that needed to get done both work wise in every possible way so this one day I go put my baby down for a nap and she's not a difficult kid but she's not an easy kid either it takes a while to you know there's a whole ritual to calm her down make sure she's down to go to sleep and all of that so after 10 minutes of working on it eventually she goes to sleep and i'm like oh okay now i have an hour i have two hours go do your thing i come downstairs five minutes later wah, 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 and she's crying i'm like shut not this again. So I go up and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Let's do it again. We'll do the whole ritual and calming you down and rocking you and this and that. And she falls asleep again. And I'm like, okay, took a little longer than I wanted. I'm a little more stressed than I wanted, but that's fine. At least she's asleep. Come back downstairs, start working. And two minutes later, she starts crying again. And I'm just I almost physically felt something break there in me, where I was like, I'm done. I have nothing left to give. You know, whatever tiny bit of energy I had left has officially hit the wall. I don't know what we're going to do 10 minutes from now, because I have literally nothing left. So I just walk upstairs, go to her. I'm too bummed out to even look her in the eye, not because she did anything wrong, but because I'm feeling just so completely and utterly broken. So I just put a hand on her in the crib, just letting her know that I'm there so that she can come down, but I'm just not even engaging, right? I just have my hand there and just like, oh God, I don't know what we're gonna do now. And she keeps crying for a few more seconds. And then in the middle of a cry, she goes just dead silent. And so i look up because i'm like is she choking is she that's not normally how it works you know there's a little bit of a wean off on the cry and you know that that's when they are coming out of it this was from full-on cry to nothing in 0.1 seconds so i'm just like what just happened here and i look and she's sitting up and she's staring me right in the eye full-on eye contact without moving completely calm she grabbed my hand that i would put on her back to let her know i'm there and she's just gently caressing it very slowly looking me in the eye and i feel something really weird in that moment i feel this uh, incredible sense of presence from her and i don't feel like it's not her or there's something else going on it's her clearly but it's almost her from a different timeline because she does not feel like a two-year-old baby she feels incredibly powerful and wise and mature and hard put into words but like something else is there and I get the feeling as she's staring at me and she keeps not breaking eye contact and staying completely calm I get this feeling that I'm getting this almost non-verbal communication where what I'm receiving is this sucks, I know it It feels like hell, I get it, but no, you're not gonna break, no, you're gonna be okay. It's gonna work out, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. And I feel it very clearly, almost like if somebody was telling me those things, except none of that is happening, just her looking at me. It lasts for 30, 40 seconds, something like that. And then she just goes back to being a baby and ooh, la, ooh, making noises and stuff. And she's my baby again, the one I know. And I'm like, okay, this is my daughter. And before it's again, not like it felt like she wasn't, but there was something like the perception was you're in the presence of somebody who's not a two year old right there. Of course, none of these make any sense from a purely rational standpoint or uh, do I even know? Because, I mean, I've seen in my life stuff that objectively doesn't make sense where you're like, okay, that was weird in a very clear kind of way. Like, this is a feeling, so it's not, it's much more subjective than that. But it was so insanely powerful, so intense. I felt it so clearly and it was really, when I think about it, one of the most meaningful experiences of my life, most intense experiences where I just had this really powerful something that was passed through in that moment.
6: thing I've ever written was called Dead Flies and Duct Tape, which was a TripAdvisor review for a hotel that really should have given me a refund. (laughs) But the most important thing I've ever written I wrote when I was 22. And so this was uh, 1992. And I was at the Evergreen State College uh, where I was getting a BA in Making Fun of Hippies. (laughs) I was majoring in Applied Cunnilingus. Earned that (laughs) 4.0. My favorite lesbian prank was to lean over the dorm balcony and yell out to guys, Hey, I fucked your mom. (laughs) I was also madly in love with this married woman, and I spent all of my time trying to get her to leave her husband. So I was not thinking at all about my family back in Phoenix, Until the night of October 7th, 1992, when I had this dream about my dad. And in the dream, my dad is roped to a chair, and this military interrogator is right in his face. And my dad is telling this guy all about his brutal childhood. He's telling him how he didn't always have enough to eat as a kid, and how his own dad beat him with a two-by-four... And I already know these stories as the reason that my dad was angry and violent when I was a kid. But here he is crying in this dream, which is something I've never seen him do in real life. And then this amazing thing happens. He manages to get his arm under the ropes and he reaches his hand out to me like he needs my help. And I think, well, maybe I can help my dad break the curse of the shitty McCloy childhood. I'll give it a shot. And I wake up the next day in my apartment in Olympia, and I start this letter to my dad, and I write, Dear Dad, and it's all about how I want things to be better. Uh, Because he's gotten counseling, and he'll take me out to lunch when I'm in Phoenix, but we're not really close. And when I get to the end of the letter, I can't sign it. And there's a good reason for that. Because even though I'm 22 and living in my own apartment. There is this deeper, darker part of me that is still a little nine-year-old in Phoenix, and it's my dad's birthday. And I hand him this card I've signed for him. And I'm really excited for him to read my signature. It has this special message for him. My dad opens the card and reads my signature line out loud to everybody. Your loving daughter, Molly. He mocks me and he laughs at me and both of my brothers laugh at me. And those two are looking at me like, Molly, you idiot. Of course we're not allowed to tell dad we love him on his birthday. Like, Clearly I should have checked in with these two before I dared to sign a greeting card. And I've got my whole family laughing at me. I had somehow forgotten that, you know, my dad doesn't let us call him Daddy, and my brothers have been calling him Mad Dog Mike. (laughs) And I just tossed my heart in the middle of this room and they're stomping all over it. And I decide right there at nine years old, I'm never taking another emotional risk ever again. Which cues up my destiny as someone who tells random dudes I fucked their mothers. because I wanna be the one laughing. But here I am and I've written my dad this letter and I'm afraid to send it to him because I'm afraid he's gonna make fun of it. So instead of putting the letter in the mailbox that day, I put on my flannel shirt, my Doc Martens, and I head out to the campus art museum. This is probably a good time to tell you that when I entered my bong in the art show, I didn't think they'd actually put my bong in the art show. It was called the tortured love bong, and I made it as a tribute to the married woman who wouldn't leave her husband. So I made it really shitty on purpose. I used chewing gum to stick a tinfoil bowl onto a plastic milk jug. And then I collaged the milk jug with cheesy statements about soulmates. And then bong water turned the whole thing brown, which is the artist I like to call a patina. And so here was my bong in this glass case in middle of the art exhibit so that it could haunt you from anywhere in the room just like the Mona Lisa. And the title card read Love by Gloria Winsong, which was also my pen name for sarcastic nature poems I published in the college newspaper. So when it comes to making fun of hippies, the tortured love bong by Gloria Winsong was my capstone project. <laughs> I was pretty psyched on this achievement. But then I took a second look at the bong and I realized, you know, maybe if my dad hadn't made fun of that birthday card when I was nine, maybe I would have been able to tell the married woman that I was in love with her. Because not doing that before her wedding at this point, is my greatest regret of 22 years of life. Like, maybe if I could have cut the sarcasm for two seconds, I could be with the woman that I love instead of smoking weed out of a milk jug. (laughs) So at this point, I realize I've got to go home and confront the McCloy shitty childhood because it has been punking my adult love life. (laughs) i got to take care of this. And... I don't want to send Mad Doug Mike some letter offering him something. I want to send him a letter demanding something. So I start a whole new letter I write, Dear Dad, you have hurt me deeply. I want apologies for the following events. (laughs) And I write number one. And I really don't want to go back to number one because number one takes me right back into my body as a little 10 year old in a Prairie Girl nightgown, lying on the shag carpet, and my dad has just kicked me. And getting back up from that carpet is one of the hardest things I've ever done. It felt like I was swimming through heavy mud. And now that heaviness is filling my apartment in Olympia. But I do it, I write, number one, the time you dragged me down the hallway and kicked me in the chest. And as soon as I put the period after the word chest, I feel just a little bit better. I feel good enough to let myself go back to being small and helpless so that I can remember number two. And then I go back to being small and helpless for number three and small and helpless for number four. And the whole time I'm thinking, well, at least I got done with number one because that's gotta be the worst one, right? It's my one example of physical violence. But then I get to number seven, and that's the time that my dad laughed at my signature on the birthday card, and I just lose it. I break down crying. I'm just this ugly heap of snot and tears. And I think, well, how how can I keep going? How can I finish this letter? And I realize I'm just gonna have to cop to it. I'm gonna have to be honest with my dad About how I feel right now just remembering this stuff. And so I write, I cried a little bit with each one of these, but with this one I cried the most. It hurts so much because I offered you love and was rejected. And it's the most honest, vulnerable thing I've ever written. But having to be that honest and vulnerable about a bunch of childhood bullshit that's not my fault? Gets me nice and angry for number eight and number nine, and now I'm just going for it. Like, I don't care that my dad came to every softball game. I don't care that he had a bad childhood himself. He's been cruel to me and I want him to own up to it. And I have no trouble signing this one. I signed this one. You might as well apologize because you'll see me at Christmas, Molly. (laughs) And I imagine myself taking a big bite from a turkey leg and staring down Mad Dog Mike until he blinks first. And the next day, I stick both letters in the envelope and I send it out. And I have no idea what I'm going to get back from this. And a week goes by, and then another week goes by, and another week goes by. And then there it is. There's a letter from my dad in the mailbox. It's a pretty decent-sized letter. I open it. Open the envelope. And the first line is, Dear Molly, there is no excuse for doing anything but loving you. And it keeps going like this. It's nine paragraphs of apology, one paragraph for each grudge. And I didn't even know he was capable of something like this, so I'm completely blown away. And... I'm also just relieved that he wasn't mean to me. You know, I breathe this sigh of relief that feels like it's 22 years long. <sighs> and then comes Christmas, and my dad says, You know, let's go take a walk in the park together, which is something we never do. And when we're there, he turns to me and says, You know, Molly. I asked my own dad for apologies right before he died, but he wouldn't do it. And I'm not gonna make that mistake with you. And his eyes are wet, just like that dad in the dream. And we drive the first crack into the curse of the shitty McCloy childhood that day. But I can't say we broke it. (laughs) Can't say that. Can't say we just overcame intergenerational trauma in 10 minutes. And we've been chipping away at it for 30 years now with a lot more walks together. We even took a backpacking trip through the Grand Canyon, but we still haven't broken it. But what I can say is that that letter that I wrote in 1992 was the most important thing I've ever written because it brought me my dad. And I still really don't like getting honest and vulnerable. Like tonight I just wanted to tell you guys about all the carpet munching adventures of Gloria <laughs> Winsong. But I'm at my best when I take my cue from the little girl who signed a birthday card Your loving daughter, Molly.
5: time frame is more or less the same this must be 2012 probably my house is getting repossessed right under my feet my wife is still dead i'm still going through grief and insanity of all kinds i'm still struggling with my career you know all sort of crap is still happening and i'm basically spending 24 7 with minimal sleep just trying to figure out tending to my daughter's needs because you know it's like it's hard enough to be a kid it's hard enough to be a tiny kid who's just lost her mom and i'm you know working mostly in spare time or when i can catch somebody to watch her for half a day and i can go teach classes and do stuff like that but i'm just literally if i'm not in a classroom teaching i'm tending to her and there's nothing else I wrote a book at that time because I had to, because I needed the money and I had a contract and I'm literally writing it as I'm feeding her, I'm giving her milk. I'm like with the other hand, I'm typing away and try to figure out what's the next sentence because I had no time whatsoever. So it's in this context that some sweet people have been very helpful. There were friends who either sent me money or did things to help us pay bills, do the basics to keep the boat afloat. One time a friend sent me some money and he said, look, this time I want you to do something purely for yourself because, you know, I can send you a little bit of money and it can help you with another bill. But the reality is that right now, you know, you are right at the edge where you're paying your bills and stay on top of it. A few hundred bucks, more or less, is not really going to change that in any meaningful way. But I want you to do something for yourself. And I found it almost... Insulted. I'm like, for myself in this context, really? This is what you say? I mean, I appreciate the gesture. You're sweet. But what the hell are you even talking about? There is no for myself. It doesn't exist. I don't know if it will exist. Definitely not in the near future. He's insistent. And I'm like, there's nothing I want to do for myself other than get some sleep. You know, that's just about it. I was reading at the time. The biography of one of my absolute idols, Ikkyu Sojun, was a Zen monk from the late 1300s into the 1400s. He was just a delightful human being. He was this famous Zen master, but at the same time his main passions were uh, women, drinking, and generally having a fantastic time. Despite the fact that he lived in a crazy context of civil war, plague, all sorts of terrible things. He still found a way to be happy in the middle of all of it and not to be the self-righteous guy separating the sacred and the profane and talking about spirituality as this deep thing as opposed to the profane world of you guys who are out drinking or to him as long as his life live with awareness and a certain level of decency you are what you want you know and I like that I like the idea of somebody who could who could enjoy life in spite of it all it definitely made me feel a little better at a time when life did not feel particularly good he had a fantastic line which is one of my favorite lines in all of literature that says throw me into hell and i'll find a way to enjoy it how good is that that's just such a beautiful line and it seemed applicable so one thing led to another, and one thing that I read about him is that he was an enthusiastic supporter of sex workers in Japan at the time. And that piqued my curiosity because I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Because on one hand, you know, so much stigma around sex work, and in some cases for good reasons. We have all heard or stories of human trafficking, of terrible conditions, and, and that stuff is real. You know, it's not like it's made up. But it's not all there is to it. There are other approaches. And so I was like, you know, like, what am I going to do for myself? Nothing. You know, realistically, the only thing that I would remind me that life feels good on some level would be wild, intense passion with some beautiful woman. But that's not going to happen because, A, I'm not going to get into a relationship. I'm emotionally wrecked and there's no way I can get into a relationship. I don't really like one night stands because people say they are not attached and it begins and dance that night and half of the time it's a little more complicated than that and the last thing I want is to mess with anybody's emotions or feelings so the idea of just getting into it with a lady where the limits of the interactions are very clear you know we can still be super nice to each other but it's there's a very clear reason why I'm there. There's a very clear reason why she's there, and it ends. I was like, "Huh? I wonder what that is like." You know, I never really had. Uh, I was always a bit heavily on the romantic side of things. I never really separated sex from love. I was like, "Hmm, what would it be like?" So I started looking into it. And then I decide, I'm in a period of my life where, like, what do I have to lose about anything, really? I'm just, I tend to say yes to everything because I'm in that type of frame of mind where I, like, consequences don't even feel real at that point. So I'm like, "Ah, what the hell? I'm just going to pull the trigger and find out. By the time I get under the lady's apartment and I'm a little bit early, I'm thinking about, okay, a little bit, I'm going to go upstairs, all of that. I'm freaking out. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? This is not me. This is stupid. This is... I almost feel sick to my stomach. I'm just like... But I'm like, okay, I'm already here. Might as well just go for it. And this lady opened the door and she's insanely sweet. Super, super nice to me in a very warm kind of way. And granted, I get it. That's her job. That's what she's, you know... I'm sure overwhelmingly is an act, you know, that's what you need to be like. But at the same time, it feels really just like we're sitting there and there's just this very pleasant, nice interaction among us. It feels kind, despite the fact that, you know, your whole sordid story about sex work, that's not what it was. You know, I like the fact that she was independent and she made all her money. She didn't have anybody... Handling business for her or anything like that. So I felt safer about okay. This is not a Weird human trafficking kind of thing So I felt good in that sense and she seemed Really cool really pleasant really nice So by the time it's all uh, Done and over with i'm sort of looking at myself from the outside and i'm there laying naked with this beautiful woman in my arms and we are just sweetly chit-chatting and at one point she starts asking me things about my life and I'm like well if you really want to know I'll tell you and you know it gets heavy quickly because that's where my life is at at that point and and she goes like okay don't pay me you need it more than I do definitely don't give me money. And I'm like, no, 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 wait, stop. Let's be real, you know, it's your job, it's you need. No, of course I'm gonna pay you. She's like, no, 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 no. I make more money than you do at this point, I'm doing fine, I don't really need it that bad. We're good. So we start the funniest argument in the history of sex work because I'm very insistent on wanting to pay her for her time and energy and she's very insistent on not. That was pretty much the exact opposite of every stereotype you could associate with sex work, where everything is about the last dime and everybody's trying try to screw each other over for every little cent. And not like that at all. It's insanely kind interaction between human beings who never met each other. They're probably not going to meet each other again, and they are just being decent and nice to one another for no good reason other than the fact that it feels good to be decent and nice to other human beings finding that degree of sweetness of kindness in a context that's not famous for that really made me feel good about life it wasn't just about hot woman sex kind of stuff that was almost the excuse but what really happened that was meaningful was something else on a whole other level I'm eternally thankful for that it just was a very beautiful moment at a time when the really beauty didn't even exist in my life
6: should have done that we never did all the things we should have given but we didn't oh, done and make it
4: go make it go away
0: well that is almost all of this week's episode folks this is Alicia O'Latica's version of this woman's work by Kate Bush and we're gonna Go out with Greg Laswell's cover of the same song. And we just heard from Daniele Bellelli, a story sound designed by our editor, Taj Easton. And don't forget to look up Daniele's fabulous podcast, The Drunken Taoist and History on Fire. And in between Daniele and Daniele, we heard from Molly McCloy, who you can find at the Real McCloy 123 on Instagram. Hey, come see Risk Live in November. On November 11th, we're in Reno, Nevada. That's 8 p.m. at a venue called The Theater on Keystone Avenue. We've had some legendary shows in Reno over the years, so we are thrilled to be back on November 11th. Then, on November 15th, I'll be co-hosting the Los Angeles show with David Crabb. That's right, LA, I will be there at the Risk Live show on November 15th at the Hotel Cafe at 7 p.m., and then a few days later, on November 17th, I'll be hosting the Risk Live Show in New York City at Caveat at 9:30 pm. Our last show at Caveat was one of the all-time great nights of risk, so come on out for the next one, New York, on November 17th. And the tickets for all of these shows and for the live streams of them are at risk-show.com/tour. Folks, you'll find so much amazing, fascinating, and very entertaining bonus content over at patreon.com slash risk, including this week. We're going to put up a story there by DW Baldwin, who is a risk fan and a risk storyteller who heard Daniele Bellelli's story about how meaningful that experience with a sex worker was for him. And it really shook something up in DW. He decided to record a sort of reaction response story about how it reminded him. He went through something rather similar. Admitting to somebody that I'm seeing
3: a sex worker while my wife is laying in a subacute care clinic, stricken with a brain tumor is just not a good idea to admit to anyone, but I need this. I need the touch. And I need the compassion and the empathy.
0: We love when Risk fans send in recordings reacting to stories they've heard on the show, or just reacting to the show in general, or sharing stories that were inspired by things they heard on the show, like, D.W. Baldwin right there. So that is at patreon.com slash risk where there is so much more amazing bonus content like it. And if you want to become a member over there at Patreon, that helps to keep risk running. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. We'll be right
7: back.
0: Folks, don't forget you can look me up for my coaching at KevinAllison.com. You can find all of the Risk team's storytelling training, including our custom tailored corporate workshops, at thestorystudio.org. And everything you need to know about Risk is at Risk show.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we're at Risk show. And don't forget fans discuss the stories over at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook or on our subreddit, Risk Podcast. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
3: All the things we should have said that we never said All the things we should have done but we never said